first of all, let me thank our organizers, uh, not only for organizing this conference, I'm sure it was difficult, but for reaching out to me. I, I very much appreciate it. This has been a wonderful event. Um, before I start, I just want to say that by the nature, the texts that I deal with are by their very nature provocative. Um, I've tried to sanitize and, and choose a specific uh, sample so that I don't offend anyone in the audience. Still, uh, some people may find it offensive. I'll, I'll apologize. I, I wouldn't worry about that at okay, all. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Perfunctory warning. Okay. About a decade ago, Monsef Dweeb wrote a play script and gave it to the Ministry of Culture for approval. The Ministry approved the play, but effectively it cut Dweeb out of the play's production. Dweeb's vengeance, as he called it, was to adapt the play into a feature film. Thus, Tarif Sejaya, or The Television is Coming, was born. This film is a comical farce about a rural town named El Malga, led by its cultural committee in preparing for the arrival of a foreign film crew. Com uh, comprised of uh, hypocritical and comically unintelligent personalities, the committee portrayed in this film is a thinly masked allegory for the Ministry of Culture. And no personality type escaped Dweeb's wrath unscathed. Many scholars have illustrated how, due to the repercussions of open opposition to regime policies, Allegory was often the preferred form of critique in Tunisia before the revolution. Now, after the revolution, allegory and metaphor have not disappeared entirely, but now what we are seeing is a combination of relative freedom of expression and overt comedic critique that, uh, an equally provocative statement, is without peer or precedent in the post-colonial Middle East or North Africa. Of course, this wasn't always the case. There are countless examples of pre-revolutionary Tunisian government perceiving cultural products as a threat to the status quo, and there exists no shortage of examples to illustrate the threat constituted by humorous cultural production. One of this conference's organizers, Mohamed Salah Omri, uh, has shown that in colonial Tunisia, there were more than 30 newspapers hosting satirical content in Arabic alone, not to mention others in French, Hebrew, and Italian. Uh, Khaled Kishteni and Omri have also highlighted how political cartooning in colonial Denise, uh, Tunisia debased and degraded colonial administration and were widely popular. Cartoon's potency in mirroring and reproducing popular political sentiments should come as no surprise as throughout their history, as Fatma Mouche Gauchek has shown, from their birth in the Italian Renaissance, Louis XIV's unsuccessful attempts to ban them outright, their pivotal role in the French Revolution, their exertion by all world powers, well, world powers for propaganda purposes during both world wars, anti-colonial struggles all the way to the present day, the character of cartoon and caricature has been markedly political throughout. Unsurprisingly, therefore, Cartoon and character, while not always humorous, were deemed a threat and censored by both the French colonial regime and Bourguiba after independence. The potency of humor in cartooning is further acknowledged by attempts of authorities before the revolution and undisclosed political parties after the revolution to hire several of the cartoonists I have spoken with. Thus, all governments from the colonial regime to elements of the current government have shown that they recognize the power of humor. This is not particularly extraordinary, and even Gamal Abdel Nasser is even said to have requested a daily briefing about the jokes being made about his regime. In the aftermath of the Tunisian Revolution, politicians have been mocked via every possible medium. The puppet show Logique Siesi, or Political Logic, has hilariously criticized politicians and even assembled the Rashid Gunushi, uh, Monsef Marzouki, and Hamadi Jibeli puppets into a rap group called the Troika Boys, who offer ballads, ballads tailored to be both topical and timely. The talented Sayas Hulk, whose name might be translated as take it easy on your brother, imitates the leading politicians' voices over the radio and pits them against the problems of the day. 
Captain Hobza is a web cartoon series depicting a teenage superhero who dons a shishia, a cigarette dangling from his lips, and battles the forces of evil despotism with his baguette. <laughs> the more visible and well-known produ productions, however, are only the tip of the iceberg in the socio-political gauntlet the Tunisian comedy has become. Modeled after the photo blog Kim Jong-il looking at things, which showcased a seemingly, en seemingly endless array of photos wherein the now deceased North Korean leader inspected the most minute of national issues, the frankly hilarious Tunisian Tumblr account Monsef Marzuki looking at things attempts the same levity. It aggregates a selection of Marzuki's well-staged photo ops into a collection designed ostensibly to illustrate the ridiculousness of political theater. The startup magazine 619 made by a consortium of Tunisian character and caricature and cartoon artists, has criticized everything from immigration to Europe to commodifications of the revolution. The number 619 evokes the first three numbers of a barcode for products made in Tunisia, suggesting that it is purely Tunisian. Perhaps more important than the content of the magazine are the efforts made by its contributors to promote the art form of caricature in Tunisia. They meet once a week to steer the direction of the magazine and its topics. Uh, they travel around the country in their spare time to offer free workshops for those who want to learn cartooning. Their workshops, like the magazine, are self-funded, and it was only in the most recent edition of the magazine that they accepted sponsorship from an advertiser in order to offset cost. Again, these are but a few examples, and while there exist many uh, certain continuities between pre-revolutionary production and that of today, the materiality and existence of so many forms of critical comedic cultural production testify to the current state of the field. One might rightfully ask, why does it matter? The relieving effect of humor is enshrined in the Tunisian expression, or excessive adversity makes you laugh. And humor's function as a coping mechanism has been explored extensively by Mikhail Bakhtin, Achille Mbembe, and many other social scientists. In light of this function, one of the main questions that I am attempting to address in my research is, to what extent did Ben Ali's regime attempt to exploit that relieving effect and attempt to instrumentalize it into what Meriam Cook sees as a safety valve. Several scholars, most notably Lisa Widin, postulate that in Hafez al-Assad's Syria, breathing room, or Tenefis, was delineated for these expressions to allow precisely for that relief in order to prevent a larger challenge to the governing configurations of power. There is evidence that a certain Tenefis-like space was present in Tunisia with the most poignant and convincing example, again coming from Omri, who showed that during the Gulf War of 1991, Ben Ali exhibited remarkable dynamism in the mechanisms of censorship when he allowed a large margin of freedom to cartoon artists in dealing with the issue, effectively attempting to co-opt the momentum of popular outrage. Omri's work heavily substantiates beliefs that Ben Ali's regime administered segments of cultural production when politically expedient or convenient. However, analyzing how humor has always been beneath the surface, has always devoured, to use the term, uh, uh, to use the words of Sheila uh, Mbembe, has always devoured the regime and its narratives and actively works to structure the social world by impacting and maintaining collective habitus. We see how the safety valve theory requires nuancing. Jack Derrida argued that there is no distinction between the serious and non-serious speech act because of simultaneous iterability. That is, the ability of a linguistic mark to be exerted in different contexts. Derrida's articulation of this simultaneous iterability is relevant for any study of humor, as it is often in evoking these marks in unstable or unpredictable ways that carry the force of a joke. Those who remain skeptical need only consider how jokes are complicit in reproducing stereotypes in order to see how the perlocutionary force of orally transmitted jokes can influence the larger structures of power. Cultural breathing space, located by many scholars, historically speaking, was indeed very real. 
But when placed in conversation with performative philosophies of action, it fails to account for the potency of less visible or less traceable forms of humor, such as orally transmitted jokes before the revolution or memes in the revolution's aftermath. A meme is typically understood as a computerized cultural production with the potential to be widely circulated and can range from a simple picture with a caption to viral videos. Taking the meme as a lens into quotidian humor, one can see how patterns of production, transmission, consecration, and consumption have all changed. <laughs> no reason this can't be fun. These meme cartoons, which I have argued are, gener are our generation's adaptation of the time-honored art form of political cartooning, are already intertextual, but also constitute a key element within a collage of different forms of production which are poised to take up everything from the most universal to topical of issues, poised, to borrow a simile, a simile from Henry Jenkins, like a parent at a pool, not absent, but ready for action if action is necessary. Memes cost nothing to produce or consume. There are a few barriers to entry, that is, the use of a computer and access to the internet. And because they are often image files and can appear in such profusion means that they are difficult to censor and control. Further, because memes do not originate in copyrighted material and are also made anonymously, they can take up far more controversial issues, often well before other forms of cultural production. Memes share this attribute with anonymously produced or pseudonym-authored cartoons, such as Debat Tunisie, which we saw in the first slide. For example, Many in Tunisia, during the aftermath of the revolution, and we've heard about this in the conference, denounced the money they believe was being funneled to Tunisia's Islamist parties from Qatar. As the hard evidence was somewhat slow to mount, it was natural that many journalists and observers were hesitant to comment on this widely held suspicion immediately. Memes, on the other hand... Uh, <laughs> memes, on the other... <laughs> Memes, on the other hand, exploded in number and have continued to trumpet the widely held belief. There are now innumerable references and reactions to Qatar's influence in Tunisia. Most recently, social media has been alight with memes reacting to Qatar-based telecommunications company Oridu and its acquisition of Tunisiana. Memes aforementioned attributes, coupled with an ever-rising internet penetration that was estimated in 2012 to be above 39%, has made user-generated content one of several key loci of epistemic violence. Omri pointed out that during the Gulf conflict, most news came from tightly controlled Western media outlets, and thus cartoons helped to fill a gap in commentary and perspective. Similarly, in speaking about the American context, Henry Jenkins claimed that those silenced by corporate media have been among the first to transform their computer into a printing press. Jenkins claims, claims that this is because low barriers to entry expand access to innovative or even revolutionary ideas. Images, or more precisely the combination of words and images, may represent as important sec a set of rhetorical resources as text." End quote. While Jenkins was specifically speaking about the American context, it is quite possible that user-generated content may be more important in reference to Tunisia. It is clear that with the exception of the Francophone media, news media coverage of the Tunisian Revolution and events since has not been particularly high, which may be a mixed blessing. It means, on the one hand, that Egypt's media presence is, has and is likely to continue to overshadow Tunisia's. On the other hand, it confers power upon user-generated content and indigenous production, allowing Tunisians a greater ability to speak for themselves. The low barriers to entry, low cost, and the difficulty involved in censoring this material, as well as its role in shaping the numerous competing discourses, have all had an effect in propelling the time-honored art of caricature and cartoon-making online. While I first thought... <laughs> 
While I first thought that this trend would be seen as a devaluing or a watering down the artistic value of caricature, it is notable that of all the cartoonists and caricature artists I've spoken with in Tunisia, they have all, all of them, sorry, have nobly celebrated the rise of this new form of expression and do not see it as an affront to their creative space. While Wadin bifurcated that which falls under breathing space and that which constituted direct political engagement, this delineation requires us to explore how the various types of cultural production become consecrated and recognized as resistant. Here it is worth noting that political weight and performative value of a work or utterance are determined primarily at reception. This is particularly interesting in light of Ethan Zuckerman's 2008 cute cat theory of digital activism, which holds that if people cannot access banal, mundane, or non-political content, such as pictures, uh, videos, and tweets of cute cats, then they, will be able, then they will learn how to use internet tools such as forwarding proxy servers and other technology to block their IP address in order to do so. It is important to note that Zuckerman's theory does not contend that this process alone will politicize a population. He claims those who could care less about, uh, quote, those who could care less about presidential shenanigans are made aware that their government fears online speech so much that they're willing to censor the millions of banal videos on daily motion to block a few political ones. People learn to find and use anonymous proxies, which happens to be a key first step in learning how to blog anonymously. Every time you force a government to block a Web 2.0 site, cutting off people's access to cute cats, you spend political capital. This is an interesting theory, although I would like to add that when censoring, the government did not just spend political capital, it also bestowed it on those they censored. Jabir Mejri was imprisoned uh, for his cartoon depicting the Prophet Muhammad. Mejri's case has been taken up by many in Tunisia, abroad, and even Amnesty International. Still, there is a belief among many of the artists that I've interviewed that Mejri, Weldel Kans, and others before them purposefully planned to cross the line of tolerable expression so that they would be imprisoned and rights groups would take up their cause and make them famous overnight. One musician even stated that this trend of creating buzz is an aberration of auto-promotion. This is similar to what uh, Amira was Yes. Um, valid or not, the resentment of artists using this dynamic to their advantage is palpable. For this reason, in addition to others, artists are themselves reproducing and policing the boundary of tolerable expression. E-revolution cartoonist Nidal self-censored a cartoon he drew to criticize those who claimed to speak in the name of Islam when he wrote in calligraphy the name of God and added a copyright symbol to the corner. His other cartoonist friends saw it and told him they were offended. They had a pact between them, he told me. Criticize whomever you want, but don't bring God into it. So he took it down and did not publicize it further. George Orwell famously wrote that every joke is a tiny, tiny revolution. And although we should be careful not to overlook that humor which is complicit in the more pernicious side of contemporary relations of power, that which reinforces sexism, racism, etc., quotidian humor is certainly not an afterthought, nor is it simply background noise. Like so many other forms of cultural production, comedic discourse not only probes the boundaries of the taboo, but represents an epistemological battleground where the broader relations of power are dismantled and or reproduced daily. In many senses, overt comedic, overt, overt comedic critique of politics and government responses to it could be viewed as a canary in the coal mine and perhaps even a key indicator in any given political system. 
After decades of closely administered cultural production, and as the structures of political power change, humor in Tunisia has become more decentralized, more participatory, and more inclusive. Bakhtin wrote that every act of world history was accompanied by a laughing chorus. We would be mistaken to dismiss the importance of the everyday people who produce and consume memes, cartoons, and orally transmitted jokes. Their humor often, most often has the least lag time, taking up far more points of discussion in more dramatic and often controversial fashion than more conventional or consecrated forms of commentary or analysis. Jokes, memes, and political cartoons are anything but secondary or insignificant. As scholars, we ignore them, ignore them at our own peril.